Hello everyone, Um, I'm Emma. Uh, Let's read together from Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Amen. Thanks, Emma. Uh, Hi, everyone. My name's Alex. I'm the campus minister here at Carlton. It's great to see uh, you and to be with you this afternoon. Uh, It'd be great if you could have your handouts open, just with the passage there and the outline there to follow along. Um, There's a stat that kind of says that most car accidents happen close to home. Maybe not that close. Uh, One of the reasons uh, that uh, car accidents happen so close to home is because that's where we do most of our driving, right? So it's more likely. But it's not just that. It's also because when we're driving close to home, we get uh, complacent. We're in familiar surroundings, so we pay less attention to what's happening and we don't do the things that keep us safe. We fiddle around with our phone, we drive straight through that intersection because, you know, this time of night, there's never anyone coming through that stop sign. I just did that two blocks away from my house the other night, and thankfully nobody was coming that way. The reason I bring it up is because I think a similar thing can happen in the Christian life. Uh, as we, time goes on, we can grow complacent. We stop doing the things that keep us on track, Uh, It might begin with excusing sin in our lives. Uh, We might uh, then spend less time with God and less time with his people and then fill up our lives instead with other things. 
And the end of that trajectory, if it just goes unchecked, well, it's disastrous. Well, at the heart of this passage uh, today is this kind of loud collision alert. It's an urgent warning, really, for all of us. Have a look there at verse 12. See to it, be careful, watch out, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Can, can hear the urgency. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Uh, in this passage, the writer kind of sees God taking us on a journey. It begins uh, by us putting our trust in Jesus and its end, its destination is God's rest, uh, an eternity with God in the new creation. But along that journey, uh, there's a danger, a danger that threatens to stop us reaching the destination, an unbelieving heart, a heart that's hardened by sin. And this is a danger that the writer is warning us against. And against this danger, he gives us three defences, uh, three encouragements. He says, firstly, look to Jesus. Uh, second, look to yourself. And thirdly, look to each other to ensure that by the Spirit's power, we all hold our convictions firmly to the very end. Now, through this section of Hebrews, we've seen the goal of creation, the goal of humanity, the destination that God is bringing us to. Uh, last week in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, it's glory. God is bringing many sons, his sons and daughters to glory. And in our passage today, in, in verse 11 and verse 18, it's, it's rest, a rest that lies in the future. And he'll talk much more about that in chapter 4. That's our destination. Well, uh, I uh, asked Ian to ask you what your ideal holiday was. Can I have two, a couple of people to share? What's your ideal holiday? Wayne. Um, tropical rainforest, bird photography. Tropical rainforest, bird photography. That sounds pretty good to me. Anyone else want to share their ideal holiday? Pete. Beach house for a week with friends. Maybe one more. Now, I know you've got them because I heard you talking, so come on. <laughs> Cycling, in Cycling in France. Oh, wow. That sounds pretty cool. We love the idea of rest, don't we? How long has it been since our last holiday? What, a few weeks since Christmas and New Year? Probably time for another rest, isn't it? But I wonder, are our aspirations for rest big enough? Are they actually ambitious enough? Uh, we can think of rest as a holiday, but, but God's rest, well, it's, it's so much better. It's life experienced in the complete fullness of God's blessing, when all his wonderful plans are realised in the world and in our lives. Rest is life in his presence, under his protection, with his abundant provision, lived amongst his people. Four Ps for you there. And God's rest isn't doing nothing. I mean, do you really want to do nothing for eternity? Maybe sometimes, in a moment you do, but, but generally, no, we don't want to do nothing for eternity. 
God's rest is actually life to the full. It's life without pain and, and suffering, without grief and sadness. It's life without burdens or, or hard labor. That's what God has created us for. It was made possible by Jesus through his life and death and resurrection. And it's in the future, in the new creation, in glory. Uh, I still occasionally read the actual newspaper, The Age, on the weekends. Does anyone else read the actual newspaper, the physical newspaper? A lot less people than this morning. Uh, I really like doing the target puzzle. That's fun. I'm really, I really suck at the cryptic crosswords. Um, but over the years, the composition of the paper has changed a bit. There's less of some things and more than others. There's less news. That's what happens when you cut... Uh, uh, funding for journalism. Uh, there's less classifieds, a lot of that stuff has moved online. And there is, there, there's much more opinion pieces. I wonder what that says about our culture. Uh, the size of the property section, well, that's increased massively. I wonder what that says about us. And another section that's really increased is the travel section. And I think that says something too, right? We have aspirations for leisure, for travel, for experiences. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, right? They're good gifts from God. However, there is a problem when we think that's the fullness of life that God has planned for us. There is a problem if we locate our ultimate aspirations on a beach or in catching a plane or in anything else in this world. The problem is when uh, uh, that becomes the rest, that becomes the destination of our lives. And so I wanna ask, are our aspirations, are our dreams for rest actually too small? What God has planned for us is, is far, far, far better than we could ever imagine. And that's what he wants us to long for. Rest is our destination. But how do we get there? And I think the answer from this passage is pretty clear. It's by faith in God from verse 6. We are God's house if we indeed hold firmly to our confidence, our faith and the hope in which we glory. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction, our faith, firmly to the end. Faith in God, that's the sole entry ticket into God's rest. Now, you, if you look at the passage, just have it, have it notice the context. Uh, this kind of central warning I draw our attention to in verse 12 is really wedged between two references to Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 was originally addressed to Israel, and it's a warning. Uh, it's a warning based on the example of the wilderness generation. They're the generation of Israel that God brought uh, out of Egypt, saved out of Egypt, and led through the wilderness to the land of Canaan, the, the promised land, the land of his blessing, the land of rest. And so God brought them to the land. But when they got there, they wouldn't go in. That's the rebellion that he's referring to. And why didn't they go in? Why did they rebel? 
Verse 19, it says, because of their unbelief. They refused to trust God. And that refusal wasn't like a one-off event. It was the climax of a series, a, a kind of a pattern of unbelief and disobedience, which led up to it and then continued afterwards. And so under God's judgment, verse 17, they perished. They didn't enter God's rest. God spoke to them. They saw God's salvation with their eyes. They experienced it in ways you can barely imagine. But they didn't trust because their sinful hearts were unbelieving. Friends, hearing the gospel message, it's not good enough. We need to have faith. We need to place our trust in Jesus Christ as our saviour and Lord. That's the ticket to our destination. And the genuineness of that faith is seen in obedience. Faith results in a life lived in obedience to God, trusting his word and doing it. God said to Israel, go into this wonderful land that I'm giving you. Faith uh, meant going in. But unbelief, well, that results in disobedience, hearing God's word but doing the opposite. Israel didn't trust God, so they didn't obey and they didn't go in. Now, God has spoken to us fully, finally, climactically in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does faith look like for us? It means trusting Jesus. It means trusting the word he has spoken and living in obedience to him. And this letter is written to Christians who are finding it hard to trust, finding it hard to stay Christian. Maybe because of persecution, Maybe because they want to leave Jesus and go back to their Jewish heritage. Maybe because they've become complacent. The writer says you need to keep trusting Jesus. And not just now, but till the end. That's the faith that counts. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. And if we don't, well, we're like the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. Persistent unbelief, disobedience, that's the danger that will prevent us reaching our destination. And so as we hear God's voice today, as he speaks to us by his Holy Spirit today, that's the warning to us. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Can you hear the urgency? That's the warning. But also in these verses, uh, we were helpfully given insight into kind of where that unbelief where that uh, uh, disobedience comes from. The writer mentions two things. Uh, it comes when we doubt God and his goodness, when we have an unbelieving heart. And it comes when we 
believe sin's lies when we're hardened by sin's deceitfulness. They're really kind of two sides of the same coin. Uh, We doubt God and we believe sin. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. They uh, doubted God and they believed Satan. And we face that temptation every day. Now, when I say doubt, I think I need to clarify a few things. Uh, The sort of doubt this is talking about, the, the unbelieving heart, is a doubt that says, God, I so doubt you, I so doubt your goodness and your way of doing things that I'm not going to trust you. Imagine you turn up uh, to the airport for your next trip. Uh, You look at the plane and you wonder, will it get me there? Uh, You're on uh, Ligon Street for a night out to dinner. You call an Uber to take you home. Turns up, you have a look at the car, you have a look at the driver and you wonder, will you get me home? That's a question, that's a wondering, maybe even a concern. The real question is, will you get in? The sort of doubt, the sort of unbelieving this passage is talking about says, I'm not hopping in. Actually, God, I'm not going to trust you and I'm going to move further away from you. And it's that doubt that becomes the pattern till we move further and further away and stop trusting God altogether. That's what happened to Israel in the wilderness. But the fact that we have questions or concerns, that's normal. We might have all sorts of questions uh, or concerns about God. Is he really going to be good? Is his plan best? Why is this happening to me? Having questions is normal, it's not sinful. Indeed, as you see in the Gospel, Jesus deals kindly and and gently with those who are struggling to believe. The issue is, what are you going to do with those questions? What are you going to do with those doubts? When life is hard, when life hasn't turned out the way you'd hoped for, or you imagined it would, when you don't have all the answers, what will you do? When his way doesn't feel right, what are you going to do? Are you going to lean into God or are you going to turn away? If when push comes to shove, you're saying, I don't fully understand God, but I'm going to trust you, I'm going to obey you anyway, that's what faith is. But if the response is, I don't trust you, I won't live the life you're calling me to, that sort of doubt, that's the doubt that leads to unbelief. And so today, brothers and sisters, if you hear God's voice, don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And on the other side of the coin, don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Don't believe sin's lies. And you've heard them, and you hear them all the time. Don't believe the lie that your sin won't hurt anybody, that your sin isn't a big deal. That's a lie. 
Don't believe the lie that you need to amass more money and, and hoard your wealth because God won't give you all that you need. I've believed that lie. And it is a lie. Don't believe the lie that you should find your identity and your fulfillment in your job or achievement because God isn't enough for you. That's a lie. Don't believe the lie that it's okay to live for material pleasure because, hey, isn't uh, God good? Doesn't he give us good gifts? That's not enjoying God's goodness. That's idolatry. Don't believe the lie that sin is better than Jesus and his plans for your sanctification and your glory. Jesus is far, far better. The more we believe sin, the more spiritual danger that we're in. And the more we give into it, the more hardened we are by it. So don't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Well, just a few words before we move on to our last point in the outline. We need to hear that the gospel is a gospel of grace. There is always forgiveness for sin. Jesus has died for you and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Please hear that clearly. The, the purpose of this warning is not for us to worry or to question our salvation. And also, please hear this clearly. This passage is not directed at those who have walked away from God. As we hear these words, some of us may be sitting here with sad and heavy hearts. There may be those we know and love who have turned away from God and are living without him. And that's incredibly painful. If that's you, remember this. Remember the parable of the prodigal son. That's the story of the son who rejected and turned away from his father. But how does the story end? Well, he turns back. And when he did, the father was there waiting with arms open wide to welcome him home. That's our God. God loves the people we love more than we could ever, ever possibly imagine. And his mercy is infinite. So keep praying. Jesus has died for, for them. God is not done. The purpose of this warning, however, is directed at us. To warn against the danger of persistent refusal to trust God. And to warn us against a pattern of living that consistently excuses and eventually embraces sin. Friends, the destination is rest. The entry ticket is faith in God. And the danger is unbelief and disobedience. And now the writer gives us the defence. Three encouragements to help us hold firmly to the end. And the first one is there in verse 1. Have a look there with me. Look to Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. We trust Jesus. We confess Jesus. We obey Jesus. We also fix our thoughts on Jesus because he's the great example of faithfulness. 
Jesus here is contrasted with uh, someone else who was faithful, with Moses. But Jesus is better. He's the one who perfectly trusted and obeyed God. And I think Moses would be okay with me saying that. Uh, Jesus did that, uh, even when it was incredibly hard. You might remember the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Uh, He was offering Jesus a path to glory, but without the cross, without suffering, and without our salvation. How tempting would that have been? But when faced with that choice, Jesus trusted God. He obeyed his word, and he stuck to his mission. So the writer urges us, look to Jesus, look to his great example of faithfulness, then ask the Spirit to help us to do likewise. So look to Jesus, that's the first encouragement. The second one is look to yourself. Throughout this passage, the writer is telling us, don't be like unbelieving Israel. Make sure we are people of faith who hold firmly to the end. As you hear this warning... Are you a bit worried? You see, I know my own heart, and to my shame, I know I've disobeyed God today. If faith is the entry ticket and disobedience is the opposite of faith, what hope is there for me? We'll have a look carefully at chapter 3, verse 1 again. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling. It's right there, isn't it? If you have put your faith in Jesus, it says right here, you are holy. You share in the heavenly calling. If I've put my trust in Jesus, I have been purified from sin. I have been forgiven. That's the truth. And nothing can change that. But even though that's true, I know I will sin. I know I will stumble and turn away. So what then? Well, sinlessness, being without sin, that's not the mark of faith for God's people. The true mark of faith for God's people is not perfection, it's repentance. Repentance is when you turn away from your sin, whatever that may be, and turn back to God and seek to obey him. That's what Israel refused to do. They were hardened by sin's deceitfulness. They had unbelieving hearts. They wouldn't repent no matter how much God spoke, no matter how he revealed himself, no matter how many warnings they were given. So the question is not so much, did you or did I sin today? Because you know what the answer to that question is? Yes. The question is, with God's help, how are you going to respond a child of God responds with repentance, confessing sin, and seeking the Spirit's help to turn back. That's the mark of faith, not perfection. Because there's only one who is perfect, Jesus, and he made us his holy people. So look to Jesus, look to ourselves, and finally, look to one another. Uh, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart 
but encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, the Christian life is not just about you and Jesus. It's about us and Jesus. When we're saved by Christ, we're brought into God's family. We become sons and daughters of God and we become brothers and sisters together. That's what he says here. We're brothers and sisters. And as a family, we have a responsibility to and for each other to genuinely and deliberately look to each other's progress in the faith. We need to do that for each other. See, church is like a brazier of hot coals. I don't know if you've ever uh, had one of those, constructed one of those, but when you put them together, they can stay hot for ages. But if you pluck one out and put it by itself, what happens? They cool down very quickly, much quicker than if they stayed together with the group. We need to encourage each other. We need to stay together so none of us grow cold. If someone is struggling with sin, it's not just a them problem, it's an us problem, right? My progress in the faith is not just my responsibility, it's an us responsibility. We have a responsibility for each other. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart and encourage one another. Do you feel the weight of that responsibility for your brothers and sisters who are sitting alongside you? what does that responsibility look like? Well, at the base level, I think it means we turn up for each other. Here at church, in our connect groups, in our relationships. And not just to catch up, although that's a good thing to do, but with an eye to each other's spiritual growth and welfare. It looks like the work, uh, it looks like affirming the work of God in each other's lives. It looks like uh, giving each other the courage, the backbone to stay godly even though we're facing difficult situations, even when you're being unfairly treated at work. We need to help each other be godly in that situation. Don't underestimate the impact that you can have by just turning up here each week with a heart to encourage others. God has work of eternal significance for you to do here. Eternal significance. Under God, it might be your prayer, the thing that you say, you'll do, or even just your smile that keeps someone on the track for heaven. It looks like gently and graciously correcting each other. When was the last time you did that for a brother or sister, that you gently and graciously corrected them? When was the last time someone did that for you? I think it was probably a while, hey. Is it because we're all okay, because we don't need it? That we're all good? It's not that, is it? It's because it is hard to do this. It's hard to do it and it's hard to receive it. But we need to. Because I am weak. 
because I'm often the one who's most blind to my own failings. So I need you to help me trust God. I need you to help me love Jesus more than I love sin. And I need you to care enough to stop me, to help stop me being hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to do that for each other. Look to Jesus. Look to yourselves. Look to each other. Let me pray for the Spirit's help to help us do that. Loving Father God, we thank you for your grace, your kindness and your promises to keep us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts, Lord, are prone to wander. Keep us close to you. Please, by the power of your spirit, help us to follow the example of Jesus, to be people of repentance and be people who look after each other. In Jesus' name, amen.